Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 202 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Thursday, May 20th, 2021. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. This is weird. (laughs) There you are. There you are. Right there across from me. I know. We're in the office. We're in the same room. We are back in the National Security Law Podcast studio, also known as Steve's office, (laughs) uh, for the first time since it all went down long ago in the time before. Down it went. In the in the before times. Wow, this is this is nice. I know it's like I don't have to worry about like ZenCaster. I can we're recording directly into my computer. I'll be curious to hear uh, the sound difference. It, yeah, I'm curious to know if people think it sounds different. But wow, this is weird. Hello, this is uh, what's it's um um right. the uh, the Tango Maureen in Rent. This is weird. It's weird. Very <laughs> weird. <laughs> we should have planned that so we could sing it properly. Not that that stopped you from singing it. No. No. <laughs> I'm so mad that I don't know what to do. Okay, anyway, um, it's actually it's apropos, right? Fighting with microphones, freezing down to well, I'm not yeah, actually, it, it actually works pretty well, <laughs> dis- disturbingly so. Um, so we're we're here for a couple of reasons. One, we've both been vaccinated, albeit for a yeah, while. For Two, a while. Um, uh, in his wisdom, the governor of our fair state has um, ordered all state institutions to stop requiring masks, and so masks are no longer required on UT, which also means some of the restrictions on gatherings have gone with them. True. Now, I, I guess we had, strictly speaking, I guess we had till June 4th on the for UT to still, if it wanted to, go that way. But UT, I think, pretty quickly said we're switching to all voluntary. Yeah, I might have waited till after graduation if I were in charge of UT for that one. I, I don't know. I mean, if, if you were in charge, you'd be hearing it from both ends. That's right? true. So That's true. But just... Uh, two heavy days is be- the head that wears the crown. Two days before graduation, it strikes me as a strange time to sort of effective immediately make mass compliance voluntary on campus. But. Uh, who knows? Could be the reason, the very reason it, it happened then. Um, but we do have graduation this weekend. Congratulations Indeed. to any of you who Woo-hoo. are our graduates about to be or other people's graduates about to be. Congrats on... Uh, the end of an earlier beginning and the, the beginning of something new. We do call it commencement. The, the, for a reason. Yes. Launching on your next phase. And hopefully National Security Law Podcast helped more than it hurt along the way <laughs> if you were in law school this whole time. Um, uh, and if you're listening because, or not because, but if you're listening and you will soon be a 1L somewhere, especially here, let us know if you're coming here. Seriously. Uh, to Texas Law. But if you're going somewhere else, Awesome too. Uh, say and do the opposite of everything we say and do, and you should be just fine as a one L. Um, maybe at some point, maybe Steve, if we don't have better frivolity, maybe we'll start doing some our usual annual one L. You know, what would you do over the one L summer? How's that for a frivolity type topic? Um, it's great. Although my advice is pretty simple: um, watching the Mets. Chill, chill. Um, what else can we talk about before we dwell watch on the Mets? I mean, at this point, like I, I would caution <laughs> that against, wouldn't help you to chill. I was watching the Mets. I think I. I just be worried about the potential injury risk of right? just being oh associated God. with the Mets at this point. Oh, that that face. Oof, man, that was that was terrible. Um, we have some national security law stuff to talk about. Uh, it's going to be sort of a probably a, a brief substantive episode, but very Gitmo heavy. We've got a, a variety of things happening at Gitmo. We've got a little bit of stuff happening in the DOJ National Security Division. Steve, does that pretty much cover the bases? Lots of Gitmo. Gitmo, Lots Gitmo, of Gitmo. Gitmo, Gitmo, Gitmo. Um, we, we will... you know, if, in, a, in a perfect world where we have time to talk about everything, um, I would express my deep frustration with the Supreme Court's decision on Monday in Edwards versus Van Noy, but it's not really a national security topic, so I have a hard time justifying... <laughs> 
well, sliding it in there. I, th- I think you know we can create a little space for it later on. I, I think I think a lot of our listeners enjoy, especially if it's something that's gotten under your skin. I, think, I wouldn't want to deprive this, them of the this joy. Is, this is a question: is 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 hearing me is hearing things that get under my skin is hearing me talk about things that get under my skin a feature or a bug of this podcast or the essence? <laughs> Oh man! Oh, we're back. We're, this is what happens when you put us in the same room together. I, th- I, th- I have this feeling. I, it's a little soon to judge, but is it possible that we're a little more goofy and frivolous and lighthearted when it's in person? I think it's. A, I think it's almost guaranteed. I mean, like, when yeah, because body language is a thing. Yeah, and you know what? This and so this goes to teaching, and, and yes. I'm really looking forward to. Yes, I had I had some hybrid in person plus Zoom courses both fall and spring, but I really can't wait to be teaching in a in a, in a full room with everybody in person where you you can have those sorts of cues. Um, all right, so Guantanamo, we have a, a variety of developments. I'm not sure it matters what order we take them in. Why don't we start with the ruling uh, uh, by oh, Colonel what, what's Acosta? His, Colonel Acosta's ruling. Oh, Al Nashiri. We're, we're, we're back, back to Al Nashiri. <laughs> it's like we're back in this room. We've got uh, Al Nashiri. I don't think this qualifies as a new uh, layer. It's separate from the dip. The it's dip. Not, is, it's no dip. Steve, the dip's over here on the table, yes. and then there's some other dishes. So this is a, a separate sort of. There uh, is an elegant sort of circularity, though, to being back in the office and talking about Al Nashiri. Oh, it really is unbelievable, isn't it? And uh, no doubt it will continue for some time to come. So, so we'll be in our nursing homes talking about Alan Sherry. That's that's it. Well, Bobby. I, oh, I don't remember much, but I do remember <laughs> this. <laughs> four thousand episodes ago. <laughs> oh, four thousand. Because I think our prior prediction wasn't it just two thousand, or did we predict four thousand? No, I'm too old to remember at this yeah. point. Maybe we'll be on Twitch by then. <laughs> <laughs> so to make a long story short, there is an important pretrial ruling in the Alan Sherry Military Commission on Tuesday, um, where. There was uh, testimony by a particular witness um, that um, Al Nashiri claims right was elicited through torture um, while the witness was in CIA detention. Um, that the government wants to admit, for purposes I'm still not 100% clear on, Bobby, right? But that they want to admit as part of pretrial. in support of pretrial pleadings and motions, not in the trial itself. Yeah, it's so I'm I'm sure with enough effort we. Maybe could have found out the precise procedural setting, but it, it's the critical but that's, fact. But that, that's yeah. above us. That's that, well, sorry, it's it's to the side at least. It's it's orthogonal. It's orthogonal. To our I was, I, you know what? <laughs> orthogonal was going through my head. So, quick aside. Orthogonal is this word that started creeping into like academic workshops. Uh-huh. What ten or fifteen years ago? It. It seems to me, and this comment's going to be orthogonal to your paper, I realize. However, you know, that sort of thing. Translation, I didn't read your paper, but I want and to talk I may about, be off point. But, but I, want to talk, I want to talk about things that I know about so I sound yeah. smart. And so I'm going to make a point that may or may not be related to your paper. And I'm going to use the word orthogonal to make it sound like it's sophisticated. It, it is a sophisticated way of telling someone else that what they're, what they're critiquing you for is off point and, <laughs> or missing your point. Well, that's sort of orthogonal. Uh, well, I don't mean to disparage it too much. Um, where were we? <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about the sort of why, um, we're not entirely clear oh, exactly right, right. what the government intends okay. to use this for. But the key is that Judge Acosta's ruling parses the language of the Military Commissions Act, which has a fairly stringent prohibition on the introduction of evidence obtained through torture at trial. 
So we should get the text in front of us. I don't know if oh, you... really? Yeah. Um, but, well, actually, we don't have to have the text. It's pretty straightforward. But but here's the thing I think is essential to grasp. Whatever it was that the government was offering this for, it seems agreed by all parties. It's not being offered for the truth of the matter asserted or in any sense as inculpatory evidence. In, 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 in Obviously, we're not at the trial anyways. It's not being offered into evidence. Um, it seems from the colonel's description that it's being offered because somehow the fact that something was said might be material in some fashion to some other issue in the discovery process in the motion practice that they're litigating. So, so here's what the statute says. So the Military Commission Act of 2009 provides, quote, no statement obtained by the use of torture or by cruel and human or degrading treatment, whether or not under color of law shall be admissible in a military commission under this chapter, except against a person accused of torture or such treatment as evidence that the statement was made. Um, and that's section 948R, subsection A. Right. And so the issue here is, it seems to be, here are the things that seem to be agreed. Um, it's not being offered for the truth of the matter asserted, and it's obviously not being offered in the commission trial proceeding as evidence for consideration by the commission. It's being offered as uh, as information that's meant to impact some motion that they're litigating. And I think everyone, including the government, agrees that if this were the trial and it was being offered in evidence, then it clearly should not be admitted. Although I think they're reserving, they're, the government, I don't know, is conceding that there was, in fact, CID, cruel and human or degrading treatment or torture, but, but they're not pressing that point now. They're saying for the sake of argument, if that's what it is, um, this wouldn't be admissible trial. The judge's ruling uh, takes that position as well. But since this isn't the trial and it's not being offered into evidence at all, the question then becomes, is the statute best interpreted to mean you can't use this stuff, whatever's in that bucket, you can't use stuff from that bucket at trial, but otherwise there is no rule one way or the other, at least according to to, to this provision, um, or is it instead a proceedings-wide prohibition on any use without respect to whether it's a trial context or a motion practice context? That that's the is that a fair description of where the issues joined? Yeah, and and sort of whether I mean the 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 pure statutory interpretation question is whether the phrase admissible in a military commission refers to any military commission proceeding or refers to the admissibility of evidence during the trial or during pre-sentencing proceedings. And the gravamen of Judge Acosta's rule is it's the latter, right? That, right. that, that it's, a, it's like an evidentiary admissibility right. rule. And so I, I want to say, so first, I think that is not a preposterous reading of the statute in the abstract. Um, but, right, there's the whole sort of broader thing that like evidence obtained through torture is supposed to like, you know, <laughs> Even if the statute doesn't prohibit it, there ought to be constitutional baselines here, except, but see, we're not sure the extent to which the due process clause applies to the Guantanamo. So I was going to ask you this, and I, don't, I, I suspect neither of us know this. I know I don't. Do we know if the defense raised a due process-based argument for exclusion, for a broader exclusion? So certainly yeah. if I were litigating that case, my first argument would have been for a broad interpretation of the statute, just as was done here. But I would have had a fallback argument trying to make the claim that as a fallback matter, even if the statute is a narrow prohibition, I would try to argue that the Fifth Amendment due process concept um, more generally prohibits any use of it at all. Now, I'm, 
I'm I'm describing what I would have done if I represented the guy. I'm not saying I think that's well, so, the, so the I, right I, answer. I, th- I think but. there are reasons why this wouldn't be the right moment to make that argument. But the other problem is, like, Judge Acosta reasons from my perspective backwards here, right? So, for example, he has a whole discussion on pages four and five of his opinion where he talks about how in the context of courts martial, right, um, there's a person that says, no statement obtained from any person through the use of coercion may be received in evidence against him in a trial by court martial. And he says, see, look. In evidence, right. right? right. That, that's the same thing. Yes, but the statutes use different language. Like, you know, he says the same concept appears in the court martial side where it can't be received in evidence. Right. Sure. The language is different, and it's different in a key way because yeah. the court martial rule refers to evidence in a trial. Um, and so that one, I will completely agree with you that the court martial rule much more clearly seems to describe the narrow rule of evidence concept as opposed to the blanket prohibition in all proceedings concept. Um, I actually still think that the conclusion the judge reached is probably the, the conclusion I would have reached if presented only with the statutory question, because I think the word admissibility uh, or admissible is doing a lot of work here. And it reads to me consistent with what he says, which is this is about the evidentiary use. And if it's not, I I think you could go a little further, perhaps even and say that if it's ever being offered for the truth of the matter asserted, um, well, I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I maybe I would draw the line at at the trial use as but, long as so, they're describing it that way. So I would make the way. exact opposite argument, which is the fact that the UCMJ refers specifically to admit evidence in a trial, and the mil- and the MCA refers to admissible in a military commission without referring to a trial. Right? Seems like a pretty big distinction to me. Um, so you're saying that like the the omission may be purposeful because it was an intent on the part of Congress to I, cast I, a broader net. Listen, I'm not saying Congress in 2009 was thinking about this question, right? But if it's ambiguous, right, the rule of lenity at the very least. I mean, there there are any number of presumptions of, of canon statutory interpretation that would say in that context we side with the defendant, not the government, right? The notion that this language is clear that um, evidence obtained through torture can be u- relied upon in pretrial interlocutory rulings. I don't see how you, I mean, even if you think it's the better reading of the statute, I, could, I can't imagine how you could say that's the, that's the only reading of the statute. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's the only reading of the statute. You know, one thing, someone on Twitter uh, asked me when this dropped, and I didn't have a good answer because I, I don't know the answer as I'm about to say. But they asked the right question, which is, well, so... Uh, there, there have got to be any number of examples of a similar question arising in the context of otherwise inadmissible information uh, that comes up in interlocutory settings in the criminal justice system all the time. Uh, do you have any insight as to how that normally gets resolved? I mean, I think that I think the federal rules of evidence are much clearer, right? About sort of things that can be, and, and also there's just decades of case law, right? So yeah, well, that's what I'm wondering about the case law on yeah. in, so Fifth Amendment and in Sixth Amendment invol- prohibitions on yeah. on the admissibility of involuntarily obtained I just, statements. Th- th- this comes back to a larger point that I've made every single time we talk about Alan Shiri, and I will keep making every time we talk about Alan Shiri, which is this is a capital case, right? That if it goes eventually to a conviction, the government's going to need to defend on appeal in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, in an Article Three appellate court that is used to reviewing criminal appeals, right? Like, why is it in the government's interests to bake into this case, right, these kinds of rulings where, I mean, these are bells that can't be unrung. Like, imagine six years from now, 
right? The DC Circuit's like, wait a second, how are you allowing all of this evidence obtained through torture into pretrial rulings? Like, sure, it wasn't admitted at trial, but like you based, you the judge, based pretrial decisions on evidence that is just completely irreconcilable with the fundamental principles of the American justice system. Well, that, I think that kind of assumes the answer to the question I was posing a moment ago, which is what would happen in the in the criminal yeah. justice system in this context? Uh, is there space for things that clearly would, could not yeah. be admitted at trial? Is there space for some not for the truth of the matter asserted interlocutory motion practice uses? So, yeah, so, and so, here it would help so much if we just knew what exactly was the utility of the statement. Did, right. did he say something that just the fact that he said a name – reveals something about whether he's a material witness, even if you're not crediting what he said about that name. Um, very, very hard to know. I certainly can see that the answer might be that as a matter of due process, no, no uses whatsoever of involuntarily obtained statements, full stop. I, I can imagine that might be the constitutional rule, in which case the government is asking for trouble by by pressing for the narrow approach here. I mean, so um, at the bottom page too, Dr. Costa says, the government's also indicated that they're not offering the statements for their truth, but only to provide context regarding the availability or existence of discovery pertaining to Fodley, the, 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 per, the, the, the DC, yeah. and others. And it's like, that sounds like what I was just saying. Like maybe yeah. he said a name or he said a fact which may well have been coerced out of him yeah. in a completely inappropriate way. But the fact that he had the name might mean like, okay, so now we're trying to figure out if we want to call someone as a yeah, witness. Yeah, but once or you cross that. that bridge, I mean, so then there's a footnote, right, where it says, right, in the reply, the defense suggests that the statute would not bar the defense from introducing statements allegedly obtained from their client through torture, right, either in mitigation for other purposes. Like, you know, you're opening the door in both directions now, right? You're opening well, I think the de- right, I think the defense is actually weakening their their argument a little bit here because they're going for a very strict interpretation of the statute. But if I'm reading footnote well, no, 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 one correctly, no, no, they're that, asking for a broader no, reading. No, they're on saying that. no. They're saying that like if you're going to go this way, like if this on the government's view, we should be we would be then be able to do this. I, I, listen, I, I actually I don't think that's what they're saying there. I think they are affirmatively saying like, look, we are arguing here straight up directly for a strict interpretation. However, we are preserving the argument to later argue that even if we are right about yeah. the strict interpretation, we need it to not be so strict in the context of mitigation evidence. Listen, okay. I think we're getting a little bit far in the weeds. The larger point is, I think there are certainly contexts where judges are allowed to consider pretrial things that cannot come in at trial, right? Like that's, yeah, that's that a general proposition that like, clearly right, happens. Just, right, yeah. and part of that's because we trust judges to do things that we don't trust juries to do. Right, right? exactly. Fine. Right. right, they consider hearsay in the right. context of pretrial proceedings. This is torture. Sometimes. Like, this is evidence obtained through torture. Like, there, that ought not to be a close question in my book. And I realize the statute says what it says, but like the, yeah. the, the gymnastics that you have to go through to read the statute to allow the government to have the judge consider anything obtained through torture, I just... I. I can't believe we're here. I don't think gymnastics, so I obviously don't think it's gymnastics to reach this reasonably available interpretation. But you can see it's not the only interpretation. Oh, I very much agree with okay. that. There, there, there's choice, there's room here because it's not clear in either direction. And and I agree with your point, To you know, to a point on the board for you for sure, is that the UCMJ rule, that court-martial right. rule, is clear on it being narrow. Right. Yeah. Anyway, all this to say, the military commissions continue to, um, if nothing else, create really serious issues for the D.C. Circuit to deal with. In Can you imagine? So, like, there are a lot of there are a lot of really famous cases in the national security setting where, after all the issues in federal civilian district court got worked out and the trial occurred, then it goes up for the big omnibus review, the direct review. Okay. Like, I think some of the the 1993 World Trade Center, 1995 Masaui. stuff. Some of those some of those appellate decisions are just like. You know, 200 pages long. Uh, just so many issues they have to crunch through. 
Can you imagine what one day it eventually will have to be like for the DC circuit? I mean, that's just going to be in more than a year's worth of work. It's going to take forever. And, and, and can you imagine how much that could be spared just by taking the death penalty off the table? Right, like, like, like yeah. the the sort of the amount of the 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 legal questions, the screaming. You mean for the nine eleven case, and here, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, right? I mean, the government still yeah, pursuing. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I I guess I would say that look, there definitely there's going to be a huge burden, and that's that's in a broad sense somewhat problematic, but also par for the course and somewhat unavoidable. I think if the government otherwise feels that the death penalty is appropriate, I don't think they should take it off the table just to reduce the the scope of issues that they're facing on appeal, unless they've taken positions that are surefire losers. I was going to say, or le- unless, you, unless, you, unless you think that by taking the death penalty off the table, you're dramatically improving, you're reducing litigation risk. Of course, then there's the question of, and I'm not implying anyone actually feels this way, but I can imagine someone might feel like, well, look, um, worst case scenario, then we don't get capital punishment, but but maybe we will. And if they want that and they think that the end result is, all right, then you end up with life imprisonment instead. It just drags out longer. All of us have to pay attention to it longer. It delays ultimate justice. I was going to say, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. Like the, the, then the best case scenario is that what we do this all over again in 10 years. Right. Well, I mean, would, I wonder what would happen then. Would you... Because not just the sentencing proceeding at that point. Like it's the whole trial. Because it depends on where it goes south, right? Yeah, if it goes right. south at the sentencing stage, that's yeah. different. Um, so speaking of, right, speaking of this, things going south at the sentencing stage, that's a good segue to Majid Khan. Uh, indeed. Things are south of Florida. Indeed. Guantanamo. And true. Um, so uh, also in military commission news, um, the government and Majid Khan, who is one of the two detainees convicted who at Guantanamo, convicted by a military commission and serving their sentence, um, reached a long-disputed, long-negotiated agreement as to Majid Khan's uh, sentence, right, which is going to be much, much shorter than the government initially sought. How much is this lopping off of the prospective sentence? Half, I think, by the time we're all said and done, somewhere, somewhere in that ballpark. And tell us about this remarkable deal. What, so, did, what, what did the government I win? May, I may have the exact amount wrong, but it's a lot. Um, what did the government win? The government won two things, right? So the trial judge in Majid Khan's case had ruled a few months back that um, evidence of his torture and his mistreatment in the hands of the CIA would be, here we go again, admissible in the <laughs> sentencing uh, uh, proceeding right, uh, for mitigation. There you go. The, the very thing we are just talking about. Um, yeah, although it's slightly different direction. Yes, um, so, exactly. No, but the footnote. Indeed. Yeah. Um, and the, the, right, exactly. Touche. Um, so the, the government... Um, let, let me sort of take this. Clearly, the government did not want that evidence uh, yeah. uh, coming it, in. Do we know? Was it going to be testimony? Was it going to be documentary or all well, the above? All the above. So it would be deemed material and he could, as mitigation evidence, put in the record in the Guantanamo military commissions stuff that the government has fought tooth and nail to keep out of any public record anywhere, including the Senate Intelligence Committee report on the CIA rendition detention interrogation program. And so, so you're kind of picturing the government sort of squirming in its seat, thinking like, oh, whoa, 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 I don't know about this. So exchange, Maybe we can right. cut a deal. So in exchange for getting a pretty hefty chunk of the sentence lopped off, um, Khan agreed to two things. One, he agreed to um, right, drop, the, you know, drop that part of it. Um, two, he agreed to move to dismiss, um, to vacate that earlier ruling, um, basically to wipe it off the books. Um, not because it no longer is relevant. It's what helped provoke this agreement, but so that no one else can benefit from it. Yeah. So this is so interesting because it's, it fe- you know, it's like a plea bargain, but he's already got his conviction and sentence. So this is sort of a post hoc 
renewed negotiation. A, a, a that's production gonna, agreement. Yeah, exactly, and it's going to materially benefit him, and uh, and will put an end to that particular path of litigation that otherwise would have been wow. We would have been having having a lot to talk about. But so, so at the risk of being the cynic among the two of us, let me just point out the price that government was willing to pay. Right to keep this stuff out of the public record, it's pretty impressive the lens the government's going to to ensure that that stuff doesn't doesn't see the light of day. So, so he will complete his sentence and at that point presumably be transferred elsewhere. But he's not the only one who might be right. transferred. Well, elsewhere. and yeah, I think that's part of the agreement was that there was an agree- there was a transfer provision in the agreement. Yeah. So that plus third piece of Guantanamo news, right? Yeah. Three more transfers, or uh, sorry. Three more. So now we move. Um, we move across Guantanamo, right, from the military commission system to the pure Just detention side. Detention for the duration of the armed conflict, where the periodic review board process continues to churn along every year for each of these uh, detainees, continuing to ask the question: How about now? Now is it safe to release the person? Now is it safe to release the person? And the PRB process has identified three. Additional names on top. Steve, was it 10 previously that had been approved for transfer? Uh, six previously. Six previously? Yeah. Okay, so you've got six uh, penny ones. Probably all people approved for transfer to Yemen, and it's the difficulty of finding conditions. Uh, right. That Five of those had actually been approved late in the Obama administration. Right. And had just sort of wallowed. Right. The Obama administration, uh, that was right when, from the uh, AQAP perspective, Things seem to have reached a point where the Obama administration itself determined it now was not a, a reliable time where you could yep. transfer these or release these people or transfer them to anyone in, in Yemen. So they've been sitting there throughout the Trump years as well. There's at least one more. I get was there one from the Trump period? I guess uh, so. There's one that sort of very quietly got processed during the Trump yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. And now and so now we have three more. So we're, so we're up to nine of the forty remaining detainees who have been cleared for release, including. Mm-hmm. Saifullah Paracha, um, the mm-hmm. oldest of the detainees. He and one other, I believe, would be transferred to Pakistan, yep. which I think that'll happen. They'll yeah. do that. Yep. Um, I don't think this signifies that the Yemeni detainees are. are right. we, 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 haven't, we haven't gotten over that hurdle yet. But um, if you add, so two, two, two points there. One, Paracha has a pending appeal in the DC Circuit um, that presumably, if he is actually successfully transferred, that would moot, um, right? Which the DC Circuit, I think, is holding an abeyance for Al Hila. Oh, interesting. And, and, and the, now they're going to hold even more. Um, but so, too, if you add Majid Khan on the far side of a sentence, right, that means that one quarter, um, I don't know why I enunciated it that way, but <laughs> one quarter. <laughs> one quarter of the 40 random detainees will either are or shortly be, right, cleared for transfer. Um, and so we'll be left at, assuming that the administration is somehow able to, to get those 10 guys out of Guantanamo. Yeah, the Yemen thing seem, seems as vexed as ever, but there's a real there's a real pathway for that uh, right. that group. Um, so, that, so that leaves 30 remaining detainees, yeah, so. right? Um, 10 of whom are pending military commission trials. Right, so KSM and others. Um, right. Uh, one of whom, Al-Balua, would be serving a military commission sentence, and then 19 who are who would be left in the category right. of not, not, not you know, um, can't try, won't release. So there's the rump, and those are the ones... Therefore, for whom it's most acute, when there are post-completion of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, when there are the next rounds of successive habeas petitions raising new factual claims, new facts on the ground in Afghanistan that call further into question whether there's genuinely still an underlying state of armed conflict, will the courts second-guess that? We don't know. We've talked about that on the show before. But where does it matter? It matters for those 19 in particular. 
unless and until they come up with some other idea. Uh, I don't think it's realistic at all to think that the PRB process is going to mater- is going to result in similar determinations for many more, maybe some more of those 19, but probably, I, I think, not a chance it's going to reach similar conclusions as to all of them. Um, they're, but, that, they're, but, but it's, it's those 19 who are the rub. Yeah, like that's, 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 that's the, the rub. Is that when we, right, when we talk, like, the military commissions are their own kerfuffle, and yep. that's, but but, it's, but when we talk about, like, the future of detention policy, right, it's not the 40, it's the 19. Yeah, that's the 19. That's really something. Um, one more, what, there's actually one more piece of Guantanamo news, it's a Ooh. little bit older, but since okay. we haven't recorded yeah. in, in a couple weeks. Um, so on May 12th, um, the Army announced that Colonel Douglas Watkins, um, who is the chief judge of the Guantanamo Judiciary and currently the caretaker judge presiding over the 9-11 trial. Oh, no. He's retiring. What's his Siri. next job? August, oops, Siri. Okay. I know, Siri. I know. <laughs> Siri can't believe it. Um, he's retiring August 1st. Wow, okay. And then another judge will have to step in. And... So in case you've lost track. Oh, I have. What number <laughs> will this be? So just since August of 2018... This will be seven. Woo. Seven. Seven judges in three years. Seven. Well, maybe she kind of go. You know how there's the concept of the officer of the day? Why <laughs> <laughs> is it like a judge of the day? I mean, the way the Mets are doing their bullpen right now, right? Like, right, the, <laughs> the, the, the Mets have, like, who started for the Mets today? I don't know. One of the an opener. That's the new. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, don't you just hate that. <laughs> I hate that phrase. That may or may not be the, the sort of the moneyballish thing to do in some circumstances, but the idea that. that the, we have a name for it? Or just, yeah, the normalization, right. the idea that, of course, you're not going to go at least five innings. Listen, you're the starting pitcher. Whether you throw one pitch or 150 pitches, you're, you're not you're the opener. Starter. You're the starter, right? That's, <laughs> that's not hard. It's just, it's sort of, it's got this sort of doom foretold aspect yes. to it. Which for the All right. All right. But anyway, so just in case you've lost track, right, there was Judge Pohl, Judge Perella, Judge Cohen, Judge Keen, Judge McCall, Judge Watkins, and now the new judge who gets to come in on August you know, on August 1st and start all over again or not. Wow. Okay. Well, the, the, Isn't that a job you the would carousel want? continues to spin. <laughs> no, like, I would, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a terminal rank colonel in the U.S. military. I would love for my last billet to become the seventh judge in three years on the Guantanamo military commissions. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not good. That's what you get for buzzing the tower. Uh, <laughs> speaking of which... Didn't I thought they? I thought there was a it's Top Gun out, sequel. It's coming is, out later this year, Maverick. So they're all waiting for for like maximum ability to get back in the theaters. I think, I think, I'm sure that's that. part of it. Yeah. Okay, let's let's have a little digression here. Uh, How did you feel about the original Top Gun? Do you enjoy that? Are you are you a fan? Wow, this is this is sort of catching me off guard. <laughs> or should we save that for frivolity? Um, or is that a whole show? Top Gun frivolity. Forget the missiles. I'm switching the guns. I'm switching the guns. It's very quotable, that's for sure. Actually, we can get to frivolity quickly because I think the only thing else we really want to say is uh, to note on the personnel front, uh, for some reason it seems to not be getting much attention, but I think it's it's a very um, important development. Who's in charge at the DOJ National <laughs> Security Division? Um, uh, John uh, uh, Demers, is, or Demers, I'm, John, I'm sorry if I'm forgetting the, the right way to pronounce your last name, but John's done a terrific job, I think, um, in recent years. And has has been held over into this administration, continue to run things for the time being while they figured out what they were going to do on that front. And they've announced that they are nominating Matt Olson, uh, a prior National Security Division official and somebody that folks in this field all know and and people, I think, generally have very high respect for. I think it's a great nomination. Um, He's... 
I think causes lots of commentary online. People who don't know him, who see that his current job is he's at he's at Uber, and uh, Uber doesn't always have a lot of fans. And so there's there's been some uh, you know eyebrow raising around that. But the the point is he's got really rich experience, NSA experience, DOJ National Security Division experience, really respected person. Um, I've always been impressed in my interactions with him. Uh, so I think it's a great nomination. How do you, how do you feel about it? Ditto. Yep. Okay. Well, that's easy. Um, can I say before <laughs> confirmed? So, but, but before we get to frivolity, can I actually be the opposite of frivolous for a second? For sure. So I've gotten several comments from people and notes um, expressing their displeasure or dismay that I have not been more vocal about what's happening in the Middle East um, and with, between Israel and Hamas. Like not using your platform. Not using my platform to, to condemn. So I mean, I, uh, ironically enough, we, I assume you're getting complaints in both directions. In both directions. Like well, you know, there you go. Um, which you know, and, and I, and I, you know, this is not one of those cases where I know I'm right because no one's happy with me. To the contrary, um, I have I have incredibly complicated and complex feelings about what's happening because it seems to me that three separate things can all be true at once. Um, that Hamas is continuing to provoke Israel, absolutely, um, and is continuing to um, engage in violations of both domestic and international law in efforts to provoke Israel. Mm-hmm. That Israel is. Um, at least in part, responding as is its right in the in the interest of national self-defense, mm-hmm. and that Israel's response has been at least in some respects um, potentially grossly disproportionate. It seems to me that all three of those things can be true, where the clear sort of victims, right, are the innocent folks on both sides who are drawn into this. There's no question that you have you have no duty to to take a stand um, on any issue. I know, but. But I, I like the way you frame this, and you've used this framing before, that in these situations where people want to frame everything as really multi-layered, uh, multi-factored or variable issues, as if there's, no, you've got to be all in for one and all in for the other across the board. No, we can have many different views at the same time, and they may cut one way on this issue and cut that way on that issue. So I, I, I think it's, I think you're right about that. And so, and so it seems to me that like, you know, it is hard it it, it 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 is not um, it is not ambivalence, right? It is it is believing strongly that multiple conflicting things are true, and you know I, there there surely are like IHL and human rights law sort of questions we could peg to the conflict. I don't think either of us are special experts on sort of that conflict in particular. Um, uh, well, right. it's especially hard in the moment to know what right. what are the relevant facts. Yep. <laughs> Without the relevant facts, it's a little hard. Right. To... So, so let me just say, like, I mean, it should be no brainers, right? And it should be something we can all agree upon um, that any use of force by Israel in self defense needs to be proportionate. That insofar as Israel's uses of force in response to Hamas's provocations and attacks have not been proportionate, that is a serious problem. But that we ought not to lose sight of the fact that there were. And continue to be right um, ongoing hostilities, violence, and provocations between Israel and Hamas. I, I think it's yeah. I mean, look, my view is that um, something. There are a few things that are pretty clear, such as the indiscriminate firing of, of essentially unguided uh, explosives is is clearly a law of armed conflict violation. Um, there's, as you say, there's no question that at least some form of response by Israel uh, was and continues, in my opinion, because the rockets continue, continues yeah. to be justified. Yeah. Um, that doesn't tell us anything right. about the legality of any particular element of Israel's uh, responsive right. use of force. There's a whole familiar set of rules that go yeah. around that. I don't know any of the relevant facts to judge any of those. Um, 
there no doubt will be years and years of scrutiny that will follow. But the sort of the takeaway to me, and this is just sort of a plea to everybody, is like, you know, yes, of course, everyone's dander is up because it's Israel and Palestine. And, you know, that no matter where you are on those issues, it's hard to be nowhere on those yeah. issues. Um, you know, as, as, as much as on any other topic that we try to cover on the podcast, like I think now's the time for nuance, right, where we can, you yeah. know, we, we can call spades spades, but also call hearts hearts. Yep. Concur. Yay. All right. Uh, so good. An episode with a little bit of agreement, a little bit of disagreement. That's how it should be. No. I disagree once again with your failure to agree with me. Um, <laughs> Frivolousness. So a moment ago. So I, where, did, where did this Top Gun thing well, come from? I, I just, it, it came out, and I'm just curious. Uh, I, I gather that it's got to be Maverick, and he's like the, you know, sort of the graying pilot up at least in part of the film, up against maybe some remotely piloted or even fully autonomous aircraft. Um, I can't wait to see if they do anything interesting in that sort of man versus machine element. I assume not really. I think we're all really looking forward to seeing uh, Maverick back. And I hope, uh, I don't know if Iceman's going to make an appearance, but so many, so many beloved characters. Um, I wish there was some way they could work Anthony Edwards <laughs> the into it, abuse. like as, as like a you know Obi Wan kind of a spectral <laughs> Jedi spectral. That, that would be a turn I would not be expecting the Top Gun sequel to take. He's up there at, at thirty five thousand feet at like Mach two, and all of a sudden, Maverick, <laughs> Goose, you, you've lost that love and feeling. You, <laughs> So good. So, so, so good. listen, I, I have to say this because it's, two, it's 2021, not 1986, right? There are all kinds of things about Top Gun that are horrendously, you know, masochistic and sexist and obnoxious and ridiculous. And, you know, you can't make that movie in 20, like coming to, like, like the conversation we had about the original Coming to America, right? And how, like, the same jokes today just don't hit the way that they hit at the time that um, movie so came out. So, I certainly agree. that That's clearly the case that Coming to America couldn't be made quite the same way in the in a lot of Eddie Murphy's humor as Eddie Murphy is the first to tell you like, Oh, you're not allowed to say the things right. and he doesn't, and he resists that, which yes. I appreciate him yes. for. Um, I, I'm thinking back about Top Gun, whether there are particular things that, that if that film were just like someone wrote this up and tried to make it today, whether like where the sense Kelly, Kelly McGillis's character, like, oh, you know, I am, I am poor, love-struck instructor who, you know, um, who, who, who violates professional rules because I just can't help myself with the hot fighter pilot man. I don't know if it's that egregious. I mean, the fact that it's she's the instructor and he's the pilot. That they, they you couldn't have a movie where there's a romance between them. I, you know, I think let me just put this way. I think it's more complicated today than it was in 1986. Well, or or th- that, that or I could hardly perceived gainsay. as perceived that right. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It I was mean, complicated then too, obviously. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I guess I just don't think it's that egregious. Um, it it, it's maybe, just such a it may have been egregiously it's just, acted. It's just such a boy movie. Yeah, but you you can. It's, I know. I just I'm just listen. I'm just trying to say. Like I think know. what's more interesting would be you know so like especially the volleyball scene is is, is almost iconic yes. uh, as like a, right. a, a eye candy for, a, yeah, a yeah. very eye candy yeah. for men kind of deal. And I wonder if if you I actually you made it women. from scratch, eye candy of men. Well, no, both uh, ways. No, oh, for, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's like familiar in that context. And you wonder if like they could they and will they. Yeah. In light of that history, will oh. they have one of the characters be gay? Interesting. Um, obviously, not at all visible on the surface, but but very implied in some of the scenes. Um, that would be a super interesting twist if they went there. 
Bobby went deep on that. I wasn't. I wasn't ready for that. Movie. There you go. Yeah, some 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 projection or prediction. Who knows? But I feel like the Val Kilmer scene where he's kind of right face to face with uh, Tom Cruise. Like there was a lot of man to man tension there. True. So maybe they they pick they up hook on up. That. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise twist is Iceman. Iceman and Maverick hook up. They're, they're married. Right. They're they're happily married. What, what got... happens to Kelly McGillis? Oh yeah. Good point. Hmm. Well, no, that, I guess I guess that's what happens. <laughs> it turns out it's not even really like a well, fighter pilot movie. Went in such a different direction <laughs> than I had anticipated. What so, if some see, of these things? See Supra, there? us being goofy because we're back in the office. Together. Okay, so here's something I'm looking forward to. That's uh, going to be a scripted podcast series. I just learned about this. Uh-huh. Marvel and Sirius are teaming up on a uh, uh, dystopian future of the Marvel universe. Yeah. Uh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy type thing where Chris Pratt's character, uh, Peter Quill, Star-Lord, uh, who's old, comes back to an Earth, an Earth that's ruled by, like, Doctor Doom, and hooks up with, or connects, I shouldn't say hooks up with, given our last conversation, Seriously. connects with some other characters that are, it's sort of a Days of Future pa- Past kind of plotline, it sounds like. Anyways, um, I think this sort of thing, when done well, can be really great, and so I'm thrilled that Marvel's looking to find podcast opportunities to do even more original content with the with these characters and embracing the idea that they can do content that's not in the movie continuity timeline. In the comics, that's, of course, old hat. Um, I guess they're planning to do some of this already with the What If TV series. But I'm excited to see this. It's called, like, Marvel Wastelands, <laughs> Old Man Star-Lord. Literally, it's called Old Man Star-Lord. It's so great. Um, but I think the funniest thing about this, I just read this. Rocket's going to be with him. But of course, they they couldn't get uh, you know what's his face uh, uh, Bradley Cooper to voice in this context. I, I think that's a little too pricey. So they got Chris Elliott. Uh, that ought to be interesting. Chris Elliott instead of Bradley Cooper. That seems yeah. Like a, which one of these is like, like a violation of uh, some kind of fundamental principle? All right. What else have we got? Do you have any Mets commentary for us? Any other uh, sports ball commentary? What do I even say about the right. Mets? Okay, what about DeGrom? Like, so I, I, he's pitching 1A, I think, tomorrow. Yeah. So he can come back, I think, as early as the 25th. Um, so that's that's been a bummer. It just, it just felt like you could just feel it coming. He's having, like, the greatest season anyone's ever had. Better sideline him for a while. Uh, hopefully he'll come back 100%. We'll see. I mean, it's, so, so and Nimmo being out. Like, so, same deal with him. So, career so, year for Nimmo. Let, 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 so let me put you on the spot, right? Mm-hmm. Who is the Mets starting outfield right now? Oh, geez, I have no idea. I know. <laughs> and, and, and even worse, uh, our little moment, I think two weeks ago, we said, oh, Lindor, the, the bats are waking up. And then mm, they went back to sleep. sleep. So so the Mets last night started in the outfield. Um, Cameron Maybin, who the Cubs literally sent to the Mets for a dollar. Um, uh, I can't even pronounce his first name, uh, right? Yoshuani Fargus, right? All right. Um, right, and Khalil Lee. Jeez Louise. Um yeah, that, that's a problem. Uh, now, it is seemingly... John, uh, sorry, jean Shree Fargus. I'm sorry. I, jean Shree Fargus. I was going the wrong way. Um, you watch. He's going to blow up now and have a great season. I know, and it's all going to be my fault for, for, for messing up well, his You get credit. Um, what about the fact that we now have six no-hitters? So... Is it? Okay, there's a larger problem. Yes, dead, yes. Dead there's ball a, action there, here. There's a little larger problem in baseball right now, which yeah. is um, not so much with the offense. Yeah. Just uh, so, do you see this? As, is this a ball issue? I think it's a. I think it's. I think it's probably at mar- no, because the ball, like where you would see the ball, right, is if home run rate was down precipitously, and it's down a little. 
right? But what's really down is just hitting overall, right? And is this because everyone's trying to hit for power? I think and, it's a com- it's so like I, I want homers or strikeouts. I think it's a combination of two things. I think it's three true outcomes, right? So mm-hmm. so you know you know, um, and I think the defensive shifts have gotten so sophisticated, yeah. Right, that the the sort of bad and average on balls in play that statistic, BABIP. Um, is it specifically one of the leagues in the minor leagues is is, is I think testing. constraining limits? But they literally on just started last week, so there's no data yet. Right, so there's so one of the minor the independent one of the minor leagues is saying like you have yeah. to have two defenders on both sides of second base at all times. Yeah. I I love this idea. Really? I, yeah, I I just I am not enjoying this. So I kn- I know it's a problem, but like I get really nervous about like changing how the game is played. Right. Well, let me let me rephrase it. I love that they're trying this. Yeah. So we can see what it would look like. Does it does it have like, some? You're gonna have illegal goals. defense in Major League Baseball. I mean, Offsides. Offsides. Or, or like, is what happens is if they draft the rule to be, you know, your your leftmost foot must not be beyond this like right. dotted line. We might even have to have a little line drawn in, and then like, like the door rule in hockey, the the trapezoid right behind the goal, right? In hockey. And, so, and then is there going to be this this idea that like, okay, but what's the moment in time where that rule stops being enforced? Is it the? It can't be the crack of the bat. Is it the release of the pitch? In which and then case, you start running right, exactly. And so, like, you sit there, just like, Ugh. like poised, like a sprinter to all of this dive. Is not, over all of this your... is going to be added to let the defenders play where they can play and teach the hitters to hit where they ain't. Yeah, let, I, I like your free market solution, and since uh, <laughs> since since that sort of thing appeals to me, I'm going to go with you there. <laughs> I mean, it's clear. I think that. I mean, so the, I, I would here's what I would support. Right, long before I would be okay with rules about where defenders have to play. I'd be okay with moving the mound either down a couple of inches yeah. or back a few inches. Fair right? enough. Fair and, enough. I, and I think one of the minor leagues is going to move the mound back, like, and see what happens there. Now, I I was never a pitcher. I think you that, were sometimes. Yeah, I was. How much like, would it like, screw you up though? That's like 1968. Um, I mean, you've you've trained your whole life towards towards would, the same it dimension. Screw, it would screw you up. Um, all pitchers make adjustments. Right, like, 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 no pitcher. I mean, the the um, Ron Darling was talking about this on the on the Mets broadcast, and it was so. I thought it was. I mean, I I love the Mets broadcasters, but this was especially good. A good, and and he was talking about how, like, when you're a major league pitcher, you never actually feel right. Like, you know, everything is about like just sort of how unbad do you feel today? Like, that's interesting, right? He's like, he's like, you never Blisters, actually feel like everything this, is perfect, that, yeah, right. Um, and that you and that you're constantly making adjustments. And one of the things that has really been instrumental in Degrom's ascension is not just that he somehow keeps getting more miles, more miles per hour on his fastball. Um, it's that he makes micro adjustments. Like he's making yeah. adjustments every half inning. So you know, would it be really, really messed up for a couple weeks if you move the mound back? Yes. But if you gave pitchers a whole off season and spring training to get used to it. You know, so what they could you, adjust mechanics enough right. to. Yeah, what you would see is, you know, the the same pitchers who had control problems will have control problems. The same pitchers who didn't have control problems won't have control yeah. problems. Maybe maybe the answer is that it would those like Degrom who are adjusters are going to really prosper. Yeah, and and those who already have some issues are going to really. Suffer. But just to be clear, like even microscopic changes yeah. in the height of the mound or its distance from home plate would have dramatic effects on reaction time. Yep. Right and on how much time bat and and so even no, as it's, like, it's as if you're increasing the visual acuity correct. and hand-eye coordination of every batter by, by to like the by, Jason by, Giambi by level. Like Remember that five, deal? Yeah, by like yeah. two to five percent. You're picking up. You have that much more time to pick up yeah. the spin on the ball. Yeah. And, and so and so even as spin rates are increasing and even as pitches are getting more, you know, pitches are getting more sophisticated, giving batters more reaction time is is leveling the playing field. Would it make it easy? Does it does the change potentially make it easier to pick someone off, uh, for the pitcher but not the catcher? Harder on the catcher. 
easier on the pitcher because you're just a little bit closer on your throw. I mean, so insofar as well, who's closer? Oh, the, pitch, the pitcher's the, closer to second base at least, right? The, the closer to second base. I mean, the I old, guess the old 180 degree yes, turnaround. I, I guess I guess in theory it is. It will be like millisecond faster to get a, a ball to yeah. second base, but um, it, it will it will make it easier to steal, right? Because yeah. the ball, you know, the the pitch ball will take longer to get home. But that's yeah. that's you know, insofar as you're going to see miles per hour sort of go down, like that's just going to be a return to the normal, not a. Yeah. So, By the way, I love it that the Padres are stealing so many bases. I, I, I love that sort of old Cardinal style baseball, even though I hated it when they were using it on the Mets. It was a, something. Um, um, it was what the the old Cardinal. Um, the old old Cardinals. It was like something something and a pile of dirt. No, right. Sounds like a cloud of dirt. Cloud of dirt. Yeah. I thought that was football. Uh, like three yards in a cloud of dirt oh, as yeah. like a, as a running offense. Was there no baseball team that went with that? Anyway, yeah. it could have been the Cardinals in the eighties because they played on turf. All right, so the Mets in '86. But the but, year that, but now I'm saying all that the Mets are still in first place, which <laughs> tells you all you need to know about the East. You mean the least? The least, and let's hope the uh, the NFL version is a little bit better. Yep. All right, um, um, we I gotta go really, do yes. some graduation rehearsal. We right should now. say really quickly though, big thank you to podcast fan supporter uh, James O'Shea. Um, who, oh yeah, tell everybody what James did for us. Uh, James awesome. James came to Austin from New York and decided. Uh, James is a is a resident of of. I, I won't I won't out exactly where in Manhattan, but let's just say a, a location that's good proximity to good bagels. Um, and so he he brought Bobby and me a, a he each, he brought us each a, a baker's dozen from uh, these were these, these were from Essa, right? No, 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 no. no his, the Essa close to James closed down. These are from no. I think David's. Uh, oh, well, that actually in my book is is even more of a oh, favorite because well, that's well, where throw down. when I lived there, that's where we used to go. So all right, um, so so you and I each have a baker's dozen of David's bagels, which I will go home and eat none of because they will be devoured by my children. Hide one. Have one in the office, really. Well, y'all, um, thanks for listening. Uh, please spread the word. You know, I, I like to note, take note of how many downloads a week we're getting. At one point, I think in sort of the aftermath of the insurrection, we got up to like 16,000 a week. It's floated back down as, as we expected as it becomes more of a regular. All right, so what happened? As, in as, act- there, as there isn't a constitutional crisis every day. <laughs> we have maybe less provocation, a little less enthusiasm, like all media, all media suffering perhaps. Um, it's down a little bit, and that's fine. It doesn't need to be any particular level. But if you know nothing, someone, nothing depends on this. Nothing depends on this. We make we make you know multiplying it by zero. It doesn't matter how many listeners we get. It Seriously. doesn't change our financial outcomes. But uh, do spread the word to others if you think they might enjoy it. And uh, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. He's at Bobby Shez and I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, yeah, stay safe out there. Adios.